Our passage this morning is Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there with me. This is one of my favorite passages. Verse 9, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes to all that I get. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let us pray. Father, now we pray that you would show us Jesus and show us our need to rest in his righteousness and his righteousness alone. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. It was a Christmas afternoon, and this pastor's wife came home from church, and she dropped down in the easy chair, and she said, Whew, boy, I am tired. And her husband, who was the pastor of the church, looked over at her, kind of puzzled, and said, why are you tired? I preached two sermons the day before yesterday, the day before today, and three sermons this morning. Why are you tired? And this wife looked at him and said, Dear, I had to sit through all, all of them. <laughs> I tell this story this morning because it's, um, it kind of ties in well to the passage that we're going to be discussing this tendency that we have to kind of outperform others or to want to outperform others or to prove our righteousness. And we do that by trying to make ourselves maybe seem more religious and more righteous than others around us, right? Sometimes we try to seek to justify ourselves by our words or by our works. And at the expense of doing this, we kind of tear tear other people down. I kind of had an experience like that this past week. One of my friends got back from a mission trip to Peru. And we're sitting there at lunch, and he was kind of sharing with me all the things that he got to do and how many times he got to share the gospel. And I quickly jumped in at the very moment when he was beginning to share, you know, how people were coming to faith. And I had to insert my story into his story. Well, I remember that time I went on my mission trip to England. We shared the gospel with 10 people, and six came to faith. How many did you say came to faith again? Five? Okay, yeah. It's crazy because I, I do that a lot of, often when I have conversations with other believers. It's kind of like we have to kind of justify ourselves as being Christians or justify ourselves as being faithful to the calling that God has called us to do. 
And so our passage this morning kind of speaks to this idea of our tendency to kind of self-justify. We see two different people, right? One a Pharisee and one a tax collector. And what we could do is we could look at and contrast the two different prayers and see that one kind of has a view of, that comes across as being arrogant, prideful, and one that is more humble, more of pointing to Christ as the one who justifies instead of himself. So there's two things that we're going to study in this passage. One is this. That if we seek justification rooted in ourself, and our abilities, and our works, and our merits, we will be exhausted, burned out, tired, and never really fully fulfilled. And second, we'll look at the prayer of the tax collector and find that if we root our justification in Christ and in Christ alone, we will find rest that is everlasting. And then we'll talk about our response to these two points. So let's start off with verse 9. <coughs> Jesus starts off verse 9 kind of identifying the audience that the, parent, that the parable is kind of geared to or directed to. He says this, he says, he's also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So clearly, right off the bat, Jesus is identifying that this message is directed to those who are labeling themselves or who would label themselves or identify themselves as self-righteous. So we kind of have an idea of who he's going to come down hard on in this message, right? Some would say that this message is geared to the Pharisees which I, I will give him that. But also, if you were going to go back a few chapters, you would see that this message is actually directed to his disciples, too. So I would say that this message of self-righteousness, self-justification, is geared towards those who are pharisaical, but also those who are followers and disciples of Christ, who still struggle with self-justification. I think a lot of us would probably fit into that group as well. As you already know, I confess I do. So in verse 10, we see that Jesus kind of introduced these two individuals, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And what is interesting about these two people is that they're kind of worlds apart from each other. One lives a life in complete obedience to the law of God. And in doing so, he feels that he can have direct access to God in prayer. He's righteous because of his works. He's righteous because of the way he lives. So therefore, uh, he, and, he and God, are, they're, they're tight. God and his Pharisees, tight. So he can, he can approach him in prayer. On the other hand, you have the tax collector. He's kind of not well liked. He's kind of on the outside of the communities. You know, he's the one that everybody kind of lumps in with all the other wicked people. The adulterers, the, the murderers, the extortioners, as we see in this text. The tax collectors are not, love, not people that are loved by others in the community. They're looked down upon. Some see them as uh, traitors to, the Jewish, to their Jewish brothers and sisters. 
But this tax collector also, he, he wouldn't even approach God. He doesn't even dare approach God. He has to appeal to God's mercy first before he feels like he can even approach him in prayer. As one commentator notes, we have two men who are offering prayers to God, but in the culture's perception, the Pharisee would have had more of a direct line to heaven. And I think Jesus is here kind of turning that around. And that's where we find ourselves in verses 11 and 12 when we talk about the different prayers. The Pharisee kind of starts off this kind of this ego-centered prayer, right? He's comparing himself to others and how he is on this, the top of the spiritual ladder and everybody below him is trying to climb up to where he is. And what makes him more righteous than everybody else, what makes him at the top of this ladder compared to the normal people, is some of the things that he does, right? He fasts more than the law requires. He tithes more beyond what the tradition of the, of the day requires. And to top it off, look at how he prays. He's vocal. He's boisterous. You know, spoken loudly so everybody can see how great he is, how righteous he is. I'm sure this prayer has big words in it, maybe deep theological terms, maybe uh, providence, sovereignty, exegetical, exposition, you know, ecclesiastical. All these big words that he uses probably are thrown in his prayer. He wants people to notice him. And today we would kind of compare this to kind of like a little kid. Um, and, you know, since I have little kids, I can kind of do this. Sorry, kids. Um, but, you know, when like a little kid, they, they make the best grade in the class. And um, well, I did this, so <laughs> maybe not all kids do this. Though, but what do they do when they, first, when they make the, the best grade? They go and brag about it, right? Oh, look, look how great I am. I'm the smartest. Look what I accomplished. You know, teacher, teacher, look at me. You know, teacher's pet. In a sense, what the Pharisee is doing is he's saying, God, look at me. Look at what I've done for you. I pray. I give. I fast. I do all these things. Look at me. Love me. When we think of this prayer, it's actually kind of... We, you know, served. Think about it, right? Because we know that our works and our deeds don't justify us. It's the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to us that makes us right in God's eyes. It's not what we do. It's not what we say. It's not how we act in the sense that justifies us. It's Christ's righteousness that justifies us. But even though we know it sometimes, I think sometimes our hearts and our actions are quickly tilting back to this idea of works and merits. Not just on how we live in relation to God, but how we live in relation to one another. Last year, Tim kind of took a few of us guys through Sonship. And if you have, I highly recommend Sonship. Um, they don't pay me. To, to say that, but uh, if they would, I, I would definitely make a lot of money because I would tell everybody about it. 
But anyway, in one of these lectures, the idea of sonship is you, you listen to these lectures and then you go home and you fill out this, these books of questions, which are very kind of personal questions that kind of really cause you to peel back the layers of your heart. But I always go back to this one illustration where this guy speaks about this, his Bible righteousness. And this, this, this illustration that he uses kind of speaks well to what we do often. And so he tells his story of, you know, of how he has had this Bible all of his life. The binding is coming off, it's, it's marked, it's highlighted, there's notes that are falling out of his Bible. And so he's sitting there and he's given this lecture and this Bible, this horrible Bible, which is like pitiful, it's falling apart in front of everybody. And so someone comes up after the, the lecture and, and goes up to him and says, you know, I would love to give you a new Bible, or, or just let me fix it for you. And the speaker's like, no, 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 this is my Bible, I've had it forever, no, no, no. And eventually, I guess he's giving a lecture on righteousness and, and all that, and so he's thinking, well, maybe, maybe I'm putting too much love and devotion into this Bible, and so I'll just go out and get a new one. So he goes out and he gets a new Bible, and and so about two weeks later, he's, he's preaching from this new Bible, and there's a dinner that's geared towards the, the conference that he's preaching at, and so he has to go from the pulpit directly to the lunch. And so he goes, and he sits down at the table, and he sits next to the, one of the main speakers with his new Bible. He forgot to put the Bible down you know, in his office. So he sits down next to the speaker, and he brings out the Bible, and he just sits, puts it down next to the main speaker. And so the main speaker then kind of, he's there talking, and he looks down and he notices the Bible. And so he picks it up and starts flipping through it. And he says, you know, there's, there's not much writing in this Bible. And then uh, the speaker continues and he says, you know, my dad, he really studied his Bible. His Bible was full of notes and markings all over it. It was well-worn. It was tattered. I really respected my dad. And so the speaker is like feeling defensive at this point. And so he quickly shoots back and he says, well, you should have seen my old Bible. And it's kind of funny to hear this because we, we can kind of resonate well with this illustration because we so quickly want to kind of justify ourselves before others. You know, the speaker, he felt he had to justify and defend his devotion to God's word. For, and for some of us, we feel the same way. Maybe we're trying to prove who we, you know, our, our faith is, is, is alive and well by doing this or by doing that or by saying this or, or making sure we guard our words sometimes or make sure our actions, we always had to put on this front in front of everybody else because we want to kind of justify and defend that we are actually redeemed that we're actually righteous. And in a way, we try, to, we, we, we try to make ourselves righteous by what we say and by what we do. And in the end, we realize that we cannot make ourselves righteous. It is Christ who makes us righteous. And we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. And so it's not by our works, our good deeds. We shouldn't be defending ourselves and try to justify ourselves that we are a follower of Jesus Christ. We are justified, we are redeemed, and we are righteous in God's eyes because we are in Christ Jesus. And that is enough. 
So many times we strive and we fight and we push ourselves to the brink of exhaustion, trying to prove that we are a follower of Christ. And if we continue to do that, we are going to be burned out. Because we're not resting in Christ, we're resting in our works, we're resting in our deeds. And brothers and sisters, if we do that, we can never, we can never, we can never prove enough that we are in Christ if we are trying to prove by our works and our deeds. And that's what the Pharisee is doing here. He's trying to prove that he is righteous by all the many things that he does. But for us, we're in Christ Jesus, we don't have to prove it. Because of our faith in Christ, we are righteous, we are right, we are justified, and that is enough. When God looks at us, he sees us as righteous, regardless of what we do and what we say. Jesus kind of transitions in verse 13, he says, he kind of paints another picture of the prayer of the, uh, the tax collector. We talked about the prayer of the Pharisee, and the prayer of the Pharisee was what? It was, it was filled with religious pride. It was arrogant. He sought justification and acceptance by God through his works and through his merits. But we look at the prayer of the tax collector, it's completely different. There's no arrogance. There's no pride. Instead, we see him come and approach the Lord of a sense of humility. What I like about this passage, I, I, I like kind of the background information that Jesus gives. Because even just the slightest placement of the Pharisee and the tax collector is important. The tax, the, as we go, the Pharisee is, he's in the temple and he's praying. And so he feels like he can step before God. He has that connection with God because of his righteousness through his works. But look at where the tax collector is. He's kind of standing afar off. He's standing back. He's on the fringes. He's so overwhelmed with his sin. He's so overwhelmed with his need of God's mercy that he, he, he doesn't even want to get close to God. That all he can do is just stand back and be on the fringe. There's no boisterous prayer here. He's not saying this prayer loud to draw attention to himself. If anything, he's kind of giving this prayer. It's just between him and God. And I'm sure there's probably some weeping that's taking place here. He's telling God pretty much that he has absolutely nothing to bring to the table for salvation and there's nothing to bring to the table for his sanctification and he's laying it all out there before God he's so taken back by his sinful condition that all he can do is plead for God's mercy And he's acknowledging that it's only going to take an act of God's grace to deal with a sinful condition. It's only going to take of God interceding and acting in his life that's going to draw him or keep him becoming more and more like Christ. 
Do you remember that time in your life when you responded the way the tax collector did? When it all clicked for you, when the gospel made sense to you, when you became so overwhelmed with your sin that all you can do is just approach God with open hands? It's all, here it is, (laughs) take it. I can't do anything with it. I need you to work. Do you remember that? If you remember that, then that same posture of coming to God with open hands for salvation is the same posture that we're to come to the Lord every single day as believers in Christ. I can't live this life. Take it. I need your grace to do it. I need your grace to live it. I need your grace to endure. I need your grace to, 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 to de- deny myself daily and to live for Christ. I need you. That is the posture we are to have on a daily basis. To acknowledge over and over and over again that we cannot live our life apart from him. Apart from the spirit working in us and making us more and more like Christ. Causing us to die to ourself daily and to live more for Christ on a daily basis. One of my favorite hymns, and if I would have known about this, I would have had us sing it this morning. Don't expect me to sing it because I'm, I, don't, I can't sing. <clears throat> but one of my favorite hymns is Not What My Hands Have Done. And I know you probably know the lyrics, but I'm just going to read a few of them to you. Listen to these verses. The first stanza goes like this. It says, Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my tolling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. So nothing, nothing that this particular person who wrote this hymn can do can can deal with this awful load that he or she is bearing. Nothing. Not all of his prayers and our sighs and tears can do it. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease his weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to thee, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. I can't do this. I can't bear this load. But you can, Jesus. You can set me free. You can ease this weight of sin by the blood of the Lamb of God. You can do it. Thy grace alone, O God, to me can pardon speak. Thy power alone, O God, can this sore bondage break. No other work save thine, no other blood will do. No strength save that which is divine can bear me safely through. You bear my burden, only you can do it, but the only thing that's going to keep me persevering through is only you. You take my sins, you deal with my sins, but the only way I'm going to live my life is if you, by the Spirit living in me, lives it through me. Because that's the only way, guys. Then finally he says this, I praise the God of grace, I trust his truth and might. He calls me his, I call him mine, my God, my joy, my light. Tis he who saveth me and freely pardon gives. 
I love because he loveth me. I live because he lives. The same posture that we come to God at salvation saying, I can't save myself, I need you. The same posture we come to the Lord on a daily basis saying, I can't live my life, I need you. That is what we see here, right? That's what we see in the hymn. That's what we see here in the prayer. We bring nothing to God, only asking for his mercy, pleading for his mercy as a sinner. But not only do we plead to him as mercy as a sinner, but also we plead for him that he would live our life by the spirit living in us, that we would live our life to please him and to glorify him and to live our life for him. Because that's the only way we can do it. And so if we are to trust and to rely on the Spirit living in us and causing us to live our life in obedience to Him, it's going to look different for all of us. Spiritual maturity is real. For some, it's going to take us longer to mature in certain areas. For others, it won't take us as long. But we trust and we rely as brothers and sisters in Christ, being transformed by Christ, that we are being perfected. But we're being made more and more like Christ. And it's going to be different. And if we know that and we believe that, then let us stop trying to outperform others and to prove ourselves that we're these super spiritual beings because someone is maybe less mature than we are. Or someone understands something that we, don't understand something that we do. Let us stop comparing ourselves to others in our faith because, because they are more mature. Let us rest in the knowledge that being made new in Christ Jesus, resting in the righteousness, being made new, being made right in relation to him, that is enough for us. And I say this to you, but I also say this to myself because as a pastor, we struggle with this all the time. I would love to be like Tim Keller. Tim Keller has been in the ministry a lot longer than me. And you know, I have to come to grips with I may never be like Tim Keller. And I am not going to push myself to be like him. I'm not going to try to outperform who I am. I'm not going to try to outdo someone else. I'm not going to try to, to be this super, super pastor when I know I'm not this super great pastor. But I'm going to be faithful to what I am called to do. And I'm going to be faithful and I'm going to continue to rest in Christ's righteousness. That it, when God looks at me, I am approved in his sight because of what Christ's righteousness is parted to me and that is enough I don't have to prove my righteousness to you I don't have to prove my righteousness to the world because I am am good in God's eyes because of Christ and brothers and sisters if we do that we can actually rest and take a deep breath Say, I'm accepted by God because of Christ. and That is good and that is enough. Why do I need to prove myself to a brother or sister? Why do I need to try to live up to be another Tim Keller or another John Piper or to another Tim Reed? Because I do. 
I do it all the time. Jesus kind of concludes the parable in verse 14, stating this. He says, I tell you this, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus is kind of concluding the parable here by highlighting kind of the obvious conclusion, right? God approves of the humble but condemns the proud and the haughty. And so what does this kind of have to do with us? When we take everything that we've studied, what does this have to do? How do we apply this passage to our lives? And I think we can draw two conclusions. One is this. I hope this passage will serve as a reminder to us and to me that Christ has accomplished everything for us so that we can rest from trying to prove ourselves to others. What Christ has accomplished for us which we receive by faith, it is enough. So there's no reason for us to boast about ourselves. There's no reason to boast about our gifts. There's no reasons to boast about our maturity. If we are to boast about anything, let us boast in Christ and what he has done in transforming us from sinners into saints, from enemies of God to friends of God, from orphans to adopted children. Let us boast in that. Let us boast that we are righteous in God's eyes because of Christ's righteousness given to us and not by what we do. The second, let us approach this passage. Let this passage teach us to be merciful and gracious towards others. There's going to be times when you're going to come up against another Christian that they're going to maybe come across as prideful and arrogant. Think back, reflect back to this passage, and let that conversation be one more of graciousness and patience and love. Don't use that conversation as an opportunity to insert yourself or to make yourself look super spiritual, but instead take a step back and speak grace. Show mercy. Show love. Because true love and compassion towards one another is not guided by arrogance and pride. Instead, it's driven by an understanding of the mercy and the grace that has been extended to us in Christ. Finally, this, trust. Trust in the Spirit. Trust that the Spirit is working in you to make you die yourself every day. You will mature in your faith. You will grow to be more like Christ. But trust that the Spirit is working in you. And be patient. That the Spirit is going to work at His own pace. And then finally, let us on an everyday basis, let us, brothers and sisters, be the first to beat our chest and cry out to God, be merciful to me, Lord, for I am a sinner. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.
Father, so often we, we find ourselves in opportunities and moments when we can quickly puff ourselves up or make us look good in front of others. Father, maybe we're doing it to seek approval or doing it to, to seek acceptance. But Father, we pray that we would stop. <laughs> Lord, that we would rest in the idea of knowing that we are already accepted in you because of Christ, and that is enough. And Father, I pray for all of us, including myself, that, Lord, that we would be more diligent in our life as we seek to do our own self-evaluation, Father, that we would be quick to beat our chest and confess, Lord, have mercy on us, a sinner. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.